See that painting over there? Uh, yeah. I mean, yes. Yes, I do see it. Well, what's in it? Describe it. Oh, okay. Um, so there are two guys, and they're on horseback, and they're looking for something, so maybe they're scouting. No. No. Where's the horizon? The, the horizon? Where is it? Yeah, it's at the bottom. That's right. Walk over to this painting. Well? Right, okay, so there are five cowboys, you know, they no, could be No, 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 no. Where's the goddamn horizon? Um, it's, it's there. Where? At the top of the painting. All right, get over here. Now remember this. When the horizon's at the bottom, it's interesting. When the horizon's at the top, it's interesting. When the horizon's in the middle, it's optical track. Now, good luck to you. And get the f out of my office. Today on Optical Track, the Oscars have announced their picks for the top 10 films of 2022, but can you really trust an organization that went for Green Book, Crash, and American Beauty? Not to worry, we've got the real best pictures of 2022 right here. It's radio at 24 frames a second, Optical Track. Hey kids, welcome to another edition of Optical Track, your monthly film school of the airwaves, coming to you courtesy of the good folks at WOMR, the voice and spirit of Cape Cod, 92.1 FM in Provincetown, WFMR 91.3 Orleans, streaming worldwide at WOMR.org. My name is Jacob Greenberg. It's always great to be with you and doubly so today as we're looking back at the past year in cinema and making our picks for the best films of 2022. And I gotta say, it was a strange year for cinema. I liked an awful lot of films, but to be honest, there weren't that many that I loved. Uh, as I always say, my number one criteria when putting together these lists is, is this a film I would really want to watch again? Not would I watch it again, but would I actively seek it out? Is it a film I'd have the urge to revisit, hopefully more than just once? And there were a lot of films this year that I thoroughly enjoyed, but didn't necessarily feel a need to ever see again. Uh, it's actually a higher bar than it sounds, and truth be told, I started to wonder if I was being too hard, or maybe getting too demanding in my old age. And that's why I revisited my lists from previous years, if you happen to catch our last episode from a couple weeks ago. And I was relieved to find that, yes, those films on my prior top 10 list did, for the most part, stand the test of time for me. And I'd gladly watch them again. Anyway, I ended up watching a lot of movies, more than in any other year since we started Optical Track, and did in the end come up with 10 that I can heartily recommend, and which I myself am very much looking forward to uh, screening again. Now, as I say every year, I'm not a big fan of rankings. I always feel like they're kind of arbitrary and very subject to change. So I've picked my favorite film of the year, which we'll save for last, and then the rest we'll tackle in alphabetical order. And uh, we start off this year right at the top of the alphabet. The ancient Chinese philosopher Lao Tzu once said, what the caterpillar calls the end, the rest of the world calls a butterfly. I like that. The first film on my list, alphabetically speaking, is one of the most quiet, understated films of the year, a movie whose mysteries and ideas I'm still processing. It's called After Yang, and stars Justin Min as the title character, a lifelike android purchased as a companion for a young girl. 
When Yang suddenly malfunctions, the entire family finds itself as a loss, unsure how or if they should grieve. What about the family dance? Are we never gonna dance again? Of course we will. But we might have to compete in the family of threes. I don't want to be a family of three. Mika. I want Kaka back. Daddy's trying his best. He's doing everything he can. I want him back too. Colin Farrell plays the girl's father, who turns detective when his attempts to have Yang repaired revealed that the android had a much richer social and interior life than the family was aware of. Though it has the trappings of a science fiction film, After Yang is much more of a metaphysical mystery, with no easy answers to its central question, what does it mean to feel truly alive? Did Yang ever struggle with being a techno? I mean, did he ever want to be human? That's such a human thing to ask, isn't it? We always assume that other beings would want to be human. What's so great about being human? All right, I gotta say, 2022, not a great year for comedies. In fact, I can only think of one movie that actually made me laugh out loud. I can't say I was ever a big fan of Chevy Chase's Fletch flicks back in the 80s, but I would be thrilled to see John Hamm turn it into a new franchise following his killer turn in Confess Fletch, a low-key but very wry adaptation of the second novel to feature the reporter-turned-sleuth. And kudos to director and co-writer Greg Matola for not wasting a minute, dropping Fletch right into a mystery from the opening scene. Boston Police. Hi, this is I am Fletcher. I'm calling from Five Union Park. Yeah, and? There's a murdered woman downstairs. So what woman? Murdered? Well, uh, this is just a general precinct line. You know, if you're scheduling a meeting or something like that. Yeah, well, this is just a courtesy call. A courtesy call? You've got a murder, you call 911. Well, the emergency part's kind of over, you know? Of course, the murder is really just an excuse to put Fletch in situations where he can fling one-liners at an eccentric cast of characters, most of whom are suspects in the murder, or are trying to prove that Fletch did it himself. May I remind you that I reported this murder and waited for you all to arrive? You been drinking long? Oh, geez, I had my first beer when I was 12. Shut up and talk. That's a very confusing combination of commands. Now, I know that Glass Onion is the mystery movie full of famous faces that drew the most attention last year, and I enjoyed it, but I gotta say I much preferred the dry humor and hangdog realism of Confess Fletch. And hey, if you love Boston as much as I do, you'll be thrilled to know that the film does a great job of capturing the city and its surroundings. Confess Fletch may not have drawn the same audience or buzz as the Knives Out movies, but between its sharp script and a very droll leading man, it's got all the ingredients for a terrific series. I have something that's planned, and I need a partner in crime. Next on my list is a film that I did not expect to even like, let alone include among my top ten. It's not really my type of film, but it promised unparalleled thrills from thousands of feet in the air. That said, it cost less than a sixtieth of the budget for Top Gun Maverick. Oh wait, is that the film you thought I meant? No, 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 no. This is a small flick, probably forgotten by most, called Fall. And to tell you the truth, I watched it on a dare just because I am deathly afraid of heights. But I have to say, this B-movie gave me A-level chills, as two gals scale a massive radio tower that stands taller than any skyscraper in the U.S. The B-67 TV tower. 
It's only a six hour drive from here. I was planning on climbing it this weekend and I wanted to see if you'd climb it with me. It would be an adventure, like old times. And you could scatter dance ashes on top. I just, I haven't climbed since. I get it. But if you don't confront your fears, you are always going to be afraid. Becky does, of course, face her fears. It'd be a pretty short film if she didn't. And the gals successfully climb the tower to stand open to the elements on a three-foot-wide platform 2,000 feet above the desert. They scatter some ashes, take the obligatory selfies, and then set foot on the rusty ladder that brought them to the top. Some films set out with very lofty ambitions. And I suppose Fall did too, geographically speaking anyway. But there's also an art and a virtue to working with economy on a small scale. And director Scott Mann rings a lot of tension out of a simple setup and a single location. And kudos too to the two actresses who carry the film virtually on their own. Grace Caroline Curry and Virginia Gardner, who you might remember from Starfish, which was my number one film back in 2019. Fall may not be a masterpiece of cinema, but it is a very effective thriller. And it's also a vindication that my paralyzing fear of heights is totally rational and healthy. All right, we got it, boy. The whole northwest section. Now, I usually have at least a couple of documentaries on my top 10 list, but this year, only one made the cut. But honestly, it's so good, it more than makes up for the lack of any others. It's called Fire of Love, and though I knew next to nothing about married volcanologists Katya and Maurice Kraft when I went into it, within a minute I was fascinated by the unconventional relationship they had with one another and the objects of their mutual obsession. I am never afraid, because I have seen so much eruptions in 23 years that um, <laughs> even if I die tomorrow, I don't care. In fact, the film opens with footage from the very last day of their lives, June 3, 1991, when they were caught in the eruption of Mount Unzen in Japan. We hope always, but we cannot be sure and we don't know nothing. You have big blocks on the top and they have to, to come down, but when? From that fateful day, the film then circles back to their childhoods and their courtship, cemented by a shared fascination with the elemental forces that shape the planet. Parts of Katya and Maurice's story remain lost to time. The most detailed account is a blind date at a cafe. They bond over their first loves, Mount Etna and Mount Stromboli. It must be said that director Sarah Dosa hit the jackpot when she chose her subjects, because the crafts were themselves filmmakers. Indeed, they funded their research by capturing unparalleled images of erupting volcanoes and churning seas of lava, looking more like abstract art than scientific observation. And they earned a reputation for fearlessness in some of the most hellish places on Earth. Fire of Love uses their archive of images to tremendous effect, but Dosa enhances it with subtle animation and excerpts from the many interviews they gave in their 30-year career. The classification on the volcans is a banir, finally. As tragic and untimely as their deaths were, after watching Fire of Love, it's hard not to feel that there was no other way the crafts could have left this earth 
consumed by the planet itself, standing side by side in awe and admiration. And across humanity's two million years, two tiny humans are born in the same place at the same time. And they love the same thing. And that love moved us closer to the earth. Last year, my top 10 included a local film called Red River Road. It was a family affair concocted by Paul and Jade Schuyler and their two sons, who decided to turn lemons into lemonade when they were stuck at home during the early days of the COVID pandemic. Well, they may have been isolated, but they were not alone, as a couple and their daughters in New York State decided to take their family band, called Hellbender, and turn it into a cinematic project. The result, also called Hellbender, is one of the most original horror films in recent memory. All the more remarkable for the fact that the couple and their daughter wrote and shot it entirely on their own. I shouldn't have kept this from you. It was a mistake. It's all right. Why did you? Keep you safe. From what? You've opened a door that, once it's open, it can be hard to shut. Real-life mom and daughter Toby Poser and Zelda Adams play Mother and Izzy, living alone in the Catskill Mountains, with Mother trying to shield Izzy from the dark magic in their heritage. Izzy may be descended from witches, but she's also a teenager, and as she discovers the world her mom has kept hidden, she sees her nascent powers as a way to take control of her own life. And others. I ate a worm. A live worm. Are your friends okay? They'll be fine. I'm not sick. You're dangerous. Rest assured, this is not the craft or charmed. Hellbender is an earthy, elemental film, making explicit the connection between Izzy and her mother's powers and the natural world. And if you didn't know, you would never guess that the film was made on a shoestring, shot almost entirely by a trio of amateurs during lockdown, with swooping drone shots of forests and rivers and some truly trippy, almost psychedelic effects, Hellbender is definitely not claustrophobic, regardless of its origins. And lest I forget, yes, Dad, Mom, and Daughter also composed and performed the great soundtrack entirely themselves. You're listening to Optical Track on WOMR. I'm your host, Jacob Greenberg, and we are halfway through my picks for the top 10 films of 2022. Halfway through the alphabet, too, as that's largely how we're going through the list. Until the end, when we reach the best film of the year. Now, I said at the top of the show that I thought 2022 was a bit of an odd duck cinematically, but there's no question that it was a banner year for one of the oldest cinematic art forms, stop-motion animation. We had the British anthology The House, which presented three linked short films. 
Henry Selleck, the director of Nightmare Before Christmas, returned after more than a decade with Wendell and Wilde. And even Guillermo del Toro got into the game with his unique take on Pinocchio. But the most remarkable stop-motion flick of the year, far and away, was 30 years in the making. An unholy mashup of Metropolis and the Old Testament. It's appropriately named Mad God. The legendary visual effects creator Phil Tippett lent his talents to films like Star Wars, Jurassic Park, The Twilight Saga. But back in 1990, he thought he'd try directing his own film. He toiled on it for over a decade, but as computer-generated effects came to dominate the film industry, he assumed that there was no longer a place for stop-motion features and abandoned Mad God. But years later, some of his colleagues saw the rushes and urged him to resume his work, offering their help and launching a Kickstarter campaign to fund its completion. Words cannot do justice to the breadth of Tippett's imagination. And in fact, Mad God is a wholly visual experience. It opens with a quote from Leviticus, and those are the last words seen or heard for the next 80 minutes, as a lone figure descends in a capsule through what appears to be layers of the Earth's crust, but could just as easily be Dante's Nine Circles of Hell. His quest is never fully explained, but appears to be a suicide mission to destroy a subterranean empire built on slavery and, quite literally, the blood of the oppressed. Now, in case it's not abundantly clear, this is no kid's film. Mad God is violent, grotesque, and visceral in the truest sense. In fact, it makes Coraline look like Davy and Goliath. But its non-stop visual invention is mind-blowing. And if you're a fan of the Brothers Quay, Jan Zwankmeyer, Terry Gilliam, or Franz Kafka for that matter, Mad God is not to be missed. Now, whether you love or hate my picks, you can't accuse this list of being homogenous. To wit, I can't think of two more dissimilar films than the last one and this next selection by Iranian auteur and current political prisoner Jafar Panahi. Titled No Bears, it won the special jury prize at the Venice Film Festival. As in many of his most recent films, Panahi places a thinly fictionalized version of himself at the intersection of life and art. Forbidden from traveling outside of Iran, we see Panahi holed up at a small village on the Turkish border, trying to remotely direct his cast and crew making a film in the neighboring country. When the Wi-Fi is working, that is. But while exploring the village he's in, Panahi inadvertently finds himself at the crux of a heated squabble between neighbors. <laughs> Meanwhile, in nearby Turkey, the actors in his drama, mostly immigrants playing versions of themselves, begin to feel that Panahi is exploiting their plight and whitewashing their struggles. The two situations come to a head with tragic consequences on both sides of the border. It's a delicate balancing act, not only between the two parallel storylines, but in the way Panahi positions himself as an observer who by his mere presence becomes a catalyst for terrible events he could never have foreseen. Seeing Panahi on screen wrestling with the consequences 
is all the more profound knowing that shortly after the film was completed, he was arrested and sentenced to six years in prison for speaking in defense of two of his fellow directors, also imprisoned. At the film's U.S. premiere, lead actress Mina Cavani shared a letter Panahi composed while incarcerated. We are all filmmakers. We are part of Iranian independent cinema. For us, to live is to create. We create works that are not commissioned. Therefore, those in power see us as criminals. Independent cinema reflects its own times. It draws inspiration from society and cannot be indifferent to it. The history of Iranian cinema witnesses the constant and active presence of independent directors who have struggled to push back censorship and to ensure the survival of this art. While on this path, some were banned from making films, others were forced into exile or reduced to isolation, and yet the hope of creating again is a reason for existence. No matter where, when or under what circumstances, an independent filmmaker is either creating or thinking about creation. We are filmmakers, independent ones. Thank you. There were a lot of surprising omissions in this year's Oscar nominations, but none more so than the complete shutout of one of the most intriguing and original films of 2022 was also one of the year's most successful films, a rare post-COVID box office smash, which you'd think would have made some impression on the Academy. So it's truly baffling that Jordan Peele's Nope didn't earn a single nod, not for its excellent cast, its direction, not even for its original screenplay, which defies expectations at every turn. What if I told you that in about an hour, you'll leave here different see every friday for the last six months my family and i have bore witness to an absolute spectacle one that you'll be seeing here today if you're expecting a rehash of close encounters rest assured nope is a whole other kettle of well something and that something is left tantalizingly cloudy as we try to piece together flashbacks from the set of a sitcom with the present-day mystery in the skies above a horse ranch in the California desert. When its owner is killed in a freak accident, his adult children suspect an unidentified flying object is to blame, and they hope to turn the tragedy into a financial windfall. That's what I'm saying. We don't just go for the quick cash in, okay? We, we go to the most credible platform to do the story. What's that, like Oprah? Yeah. Like Oprah, for example. After that, everybody won't end. Well, I'm saying there's plenty of videos of flying online. I saw one the other day that wasn't on Oprah. I didn't say Oprah. You said Oprah. You love Oprah. Like, all I'm saying is all that online is fake, low quality. Ain't nobody gonna get what we gonna get. What we gonna get? The shot. What shot? The shot. The money shot. Undeniable, singular, the, the Oprah shot. The Oprah shot? Jordan Peele's debut, Get Out, was one of the best films of the last decade, but I was less impressed by his sophomore effort, Us. So I was thrilled to see him return to form with his latest, one of the most daring and strangest films released by a major studio in recent memory. I love a film that respects its audience enough not to hold their hand through every revelation, and to leave some loose ends untied, like 
What exactly is in the sky? Where did it come from? And what is up with that shoe? I suspect Nope is a film we're going to be dissecting for a long time. Much longer, in fact, than many of the less deserving nominees for Best Picture. Next up, another film, like Fall, that I really didn't expect to like as much as I did. Or maybe not at all. Truth be told, I'm not a big Ron Howard fan. He's definitely capable of good work. I think Apollo 13 is a masterpiece, and uh, Parenthood's still pretty damn funny. But let's face it, he's made a lot of schlock over the years. And even his true-to-life stories, or maybe those in particular, get bogged down in sentiment and saccharin. So I'm very, very pleased to report that 13 Lives, his account of the 2018 rescue of 12 boys and their coach from a flooded cave in Thailand, is neither of those things. In fact, it's absolutely riveting. How many of you? 13. 13? They're all alive. 13! Brilliant! Can we go out now? Though it was front page news for weeks, I confess I was not aware of all the details about this remarkable rescue operation. The no-nonsense script by William Nicholson, probably best known for Gladiator, cuts right to the chase, keeping the focus not on any individual heroes or victims, but on the clock, as oxygen in the cave runs low and a second monsoon looms. Indeed, it evokes Howard's own Apollo 13 as a group of professionals make hard decisions in the face of impossible odds. We're talking about administering anesthetics under conditions where we just, we just can't monitor the effects. So, yeah, too much and respiration can just shut down. Uh, and too little and... Uh, if they wake up underwater, that they can drown. So you are expecting uh, casualties? Yes, I expect casualties. I have only one complaint with 13 Lives, and it's that even at two and a half hours, it simply wasn't long enough. The dive from the mouth of the cave to where the boys were holed up took six hours, and that's just one way. Howard and his editor James Wilcox do their best to convey that journey, which was made even more arduous when the divers started transporting the anesthetized boys one by one but I would have gladly watched a 13 Lives miniseries. That's brilliant. Or insane. Oh, both. So that makes nine of my picks for the top 10 films of last year. Only one left, and that's my vote for the very best film of 2022. And let me just say, it's gratifying that for once, I don't seem to be going out on a limb, because more than 40 critics have put it at the top of their best of list too. Even so, I did not see its 11 Oscar nominations coming, more than any other film this year. I'm speaking, of course, about everything, everywhere, all at once. My husband won't even kill the spider. How can you be the same person? You underestimate how the smallest decision can compound into significant differences over a lifetime. Every tiny decision creates another branching universe. Another... Were you not paying attention before? Of course. You're just very bad at explaining... <laughs> One of Jean-Luc Godard's most famous aphorisms is On doit tout mettre dans un film. Translated, one should put everything into a film. And the Daniels, as the creative duo behind Everything Everywhere are known, 
clearly took this as their mantra, spinning a mundane story about a middle-aged woman with tax problems into a multiverse of endless possibilities. She jumps somewhere, brute force. The sumo wrestler, bodybuilder. Doesn't matter. Count over someone agile. On your perimeter, we've got a breakdancer, mime, a gymnast. Give me Judas. Go. Calculating roots. Though there are fight scenes aplenty, this is no Marvel multiverse. Here with infinite possibilities comes infinite opportunity for regret. Everything Everywhere's loopy premise couldn't succeed if it weren't rooted in some very real and painful emotions. Disappointment, resentment, longing, embodied by a pair of pitch-perfect performances from veteran actors Michelle Yeoh and Kiwe Kwan. My dear Evelyn, I know you. With every passing moment you feel you might have missed your chance to make something of your life. I'm here to tell you, every rejection, every disappointment has led you here to this moment. Don't let anything distract you from it. <laughs> Do you think this is funny? Though it lost out to the Banshees of Inna Sharon at the Golden Globes, I still think Everything Everywhere All at Once has a real shot at taking home the Best Picture Award at this year's Oscars. And since it's the only nominee to make my top 10 list, needless to say, I'm pulling for it. All right, that's going to do it for this edition of Optical Track. I hope you enjoyed it and hope you liked my selections for the best films of 2022. I'd love to hear your picks too, so feel free to drop me a line at opticaltrack at WOMR.org. And we'll be back again next month in our usual slot, the third Monday of every month. Until then, have a happy Groundhog Day, happy Valentine's Day, and I'll see you back here on President's Day. That's February 20th at 12.30 p.m. Take care. Mm -hmm.